You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Andreas Wiese, and as the director of the House of Literature, it's a great honor for me to be given the opportunity to welcome Asli Erdogan to our house here in Oslo tonight. Asli Erdogan is a Turkish writer, journalist, and human rights activist. Earlier, she was a particle physicist, and she worked at CERN in the early 90s. But in 2004, her first novel was published in Norwegian, Byen med den røde kappa, The City with the Crimson Coke. And this was followed by The Miraculous Mandarin, The Miraculous Mandarin, and Steinbigningen, The Stone Building. In a country rapidly losing any semblance with democracy, she remained one of the sane voices who, with the power of pen and words, fought for humanism, democracy, tolerance. In her brave actions and essays, she made it possible for others to see and know what was happening, and she and her colleagues made it impossible for the government or military to deny the truth. This has not made her popular with the power in Turkey. The newspaper she published in was closed. Its journalists were arrested, charged with collaborating with terrorists. Asli Erdogan herself was jailed for 132 days. When she was released, her passport was withheld. She was not allowed to go to Germany to receive the Eric Maria Remark Prize given to her there. And when she recently got her passport back and was traveling, able to travel again, she chose to come to Europe and to visit also us in Norway. We are so happy to have her with us here today. But back in Turkey, a trial awaits her, even if the charges against her are ridiculous. That does not mean she does not risk being found guilty, as does many of Turkey's journalists, writers, academics, human rights activists. If convicted, she and others could face up to life imprisonment. Their so-called crimes are expressing their opinion, opposing an ever more authoritarian government, fighting for human rights, and fighting for the people's right not to get arrested, not to get tortured or killed. Today, Asli Erdogan's visit coincides with the publishing of her latest book, a collection of the very essays which got her arrested. No Din is out at Yildal, translated into Norwegian by Ingeborg Fossestern. The essays were first published in the newspaper that was shut down. And to lead this talk with Atlegan, we have Mustafa Chan. Mustafa Chan is a Kurdish Swedish journalist and author. He is also a very good friend of the host and has been to our stage a number of times before. Allow me to end this introduction by quoting from the last paragraph of the title essay of Astrid Erdogan's book. Å forsvare frihet og fred er hverken en forbrytelse eller en heltedåd. Det er en plikt. Å ikke vil være medskyldig i en forbrytelse er mer enn en rett og en plikt. Det er den egentlige grunnen til at vi lever. Please give Asli Erdogan and Mustafa Khan a very warm welcome. Asli, I thought that this is Sunday, and I thought that, well, who is going to come to the House of Literature on a Sunday in Oslo? But, but look at the audience. I get nervous <laughs> when I look so... Uh, oh, really? I, I try not to have eye contact. <laughs> okay. 
look into my eyes then only, okay? <laughs> well, lastly, you're most welcome to Oslo. Is this your first time at the House of Literature? I think so, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah? I was in Oslo before, but in the House of Literature, I think it's first. Okay. Listen, uh, a senior publisher at Jyllendal, Janneke Nøverland, are you here? There she is, <laughs> your Norwegian former publisher. Once My told first publisher. Your first publisher in Norway. Uh, okay. Internationally. Oh, really? Jyllendal is the... She once told me that, she said, Asli Erdogan is one of the most original writers she has published. And it is not so easy to describe Asli's book for someone who has not read them, but whether she writes about love or the darkest around and within us, it's quite magical, poetic, and very deep. And your breakthrough was with, uh, in Norwegian, Den Miraculöse Mandarinen, mm -hmm. in 1996. And since then, you have written a row of beautiful and painful novels. But also a numerous of articles and essays and columns, often about injustice and oppression, and often from a female perspective. Well, having said that, I'm sure all of you know that uh, the 17th of August 2016, Asli Erdogan was arrested at her home in Istanbul and charged with supporting terrorism. Not because of your novels, but as a result of your writings in and being part of the advisory board uh, of the pro-Kurdish newspaper, Özgür Gündem. Yeah. If convicted, the penalty would be life imprisonment. Yeah, ag aggravated life, which means uh, actually death penalty, but now turned into aggravated life, uh, life in a, in a cell. Very kind of them. Yeah, and it can yeah. any moment turn into <laughs> death sentence again. Now they are discussing to put the death sentence back. They are. So 302 is a death sentence, actually. Yeah, okay. But you were re released from jail after 132 days. First of all, uh, are the charges dropped or are they still active? Uh, they are not dropped, but uh, the prosecutor himself said there is no evidence for 302 <coughs> and 314, which is uh, being a member of terrorist organization. Yeah. So now there is only left propaganda, but in Turkey, things are so out of order these days. Yeah. There was an HDP parliamenter. The mm -hmm. prosecutor dropped the charges. Yeah. Six months later, the same prosecutor asked for a sentence, and he got, I think, eight years or so for being a member of a terrorist organization. So you never know. In, in theory, if, yeah. if a prosecutor once says there is no evidence, yeah. That's it. It means dropped. But in Turkey, they drop and they put it back. It depends on the phone call and their mood. So but when we spoke a couple of days ago, you said, maybe I'm going back. I said, are you stupid? Well, it, there was a very positive development. Actually, the last, I mean, this is a case which is, we are uh, six people on the advisory board. Yeah. Only two were arrested. In fact, one, the only Kurdish one, they don't even open charges. 
You see, they charge us with life, five advisors, mm-hmm. one advisor, nothing. Yeah. I am Bilgen. Yeah. And out of the other five, they arrested the two, me and Nejmi Alpay, the linguist. Yeah. Uh, <coughs> but they also arrested the two editors-in-chief, yeah. Zana and uh, Inan. Yeah. Zana was released with us. Inan was the only one in, the, in this case who was still in jail. Last Tuesday, they released him. So the lawyers say it's a very positive development that... Uh, that no one is now under arrest from Özgür Gündem main yeah. uh, case. <coughs> there is also a second case about Özgür. There are, in fact, hundreds of cases. Hundreds of cases. Yeah. Uh, Inan has 96 on yeah. him. 96 cases of propaganda. Eren Keskin, the old editor in chief and the human rights uh, lawyer, she has 143. And yeah, she and she got sentenced to a few from a few. But they didn't arrest her. So everything is so strange. They don't. They, they never arrested Eren Keskin, although she's also asked with life plus 143, <laughs> a year and a half of each. And um, there is also the case of hundred people who were in solidarity with Özgür Gündem. Yeah. They did one day, uh, symbolic editor in chief. Mm-hmm. Among these hundred. I'm among them also. They opened investigation only to 60. They opened cases to <coughs> 30 of that 60. Yeah. And out of these 30 people, they gave sentences to 20, be- below two years. Uh, but only one they arrested. Yeah. Murat Çelikan is in jail now. Yeah. He's the only one actually uh, who, because of this being in solidarity with... Uh, he's a ju- well-known journalist, yeah. he got a sentence one year, but all the other sentences were postponed, but the judge said, we will, I will arrest you. So, so what is the status now? Where do you live? Where is your home? Where is your place? Where can you sit down and have a cup of tea and have a smoke and Well, I, I left on uh, when I... I I was released. Then I the lift on. Uh, on uh, they they lifted the ban on my foreign traveling. Yeah. But still, from June to August, I couldn't get my passport, and suddenly I got it. Yeah. And within a week, I <coughs> left, and I still didn't return. I'm with the same suites, one it, and a half. It month. looks good though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> black, so it doesn't show. To the <laughs> But lastly, uh, a lot of your friends or people you know are still in jail. And yeah. Turkey is today, the, they have more prisoners, I mean, among journalists and intellectuals than China have. Than all the world combined yeah. together. Yeah. Uh, 180. So, yeah. Are you still in jail? Well, once you are in jail, you are never fully out. I mean, it's a prisoner is a prisoner. It's, uh, there are moments that you are back there suddenly and uh, the barbed wire suddenly appears, the stone. Uh, and sometimes in a positive way, sometimes you even miss the prison. Uh, you miss the prison? Yes. Why? The people. Basically, the people and the, the solidarity, the, you know, every, every, like war. People come back from war and they can never adapt to real life because in, 
everyday daily life there is nothing as extreme. The emotions are modest. Mm -hmm. But if you have fall in love during war, it's much more extreme. It's death yeah. or is it last time or it's same in prison. Every emotion is carried to the extreme and every friendship is is very, very different. And in the daily life, nothing is as strong as that. I mean, so, so when does this occur? In the mornings, in the evenings, in the night, when you sleep or... When? Uh, you never know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. No. I mean, when I was in prison, for example, in the initial days, yeah. the ladies, the women, they washed the courtyard every yeah. evening with lots of buckets of water, and I imagined the sea. Yeah. I would listen to this sound, and I, I had no chance to go to swimming in 2016. Yeah. And so... and. And I grew up with the sea, so for me, each year I have to swim in the sea at least two or three weeks. Yeah. And that summer I couldn't, and I dreamt of the sea with that sound of the water. But when I saw the sea <laughs> in the Bosphorus, yeah. months later, yeah. I suddenly started remembering the sound of those buckets and I, how much I missed this, this sound. You see, the, you want to see, you want to see a tree in the jail so much, you come out, it's not the tree that you missed. There no. are millions of trees, but that one tree is, is not there, it's in the prison. <laughs> yeah, but can you tell us more about the time in prison? Because I think that all of us have some, we have some illusions or, or thoughts of what it would be like to be in prison, that you're cut off from people you love, from the food you love, from places you love. Can you tell us more about the everyday life in prison? How did the days pass? Well, there are many, many <coughs> metaphors and images about prison, and they are, in fact, very true. This is the first thing you realize. Oh, it's yeah? just like in the films. Barbed wires, big locks, chains, and all it is the sound of the metal. Mm -hmm. which is horrible, actually. Yeah. It's like you are in the Middle Ages. You can't even open a small lock and they lock you in with locks like that, <laughs> yeah. as if you are a wild animal or something. And there's barbed wire everywhere and only stone, stone, stone. You, no color, no, nothing soft, nothing warm, no music. And uh, it's like... A horrible place, imagine like you are in the toilet of a bar. It's, you want to get out immediately and the door is locked. And you stay there one hour, one day, one week. A place you can't even stand two minutes. You stay there months and years and of course you get adjusted. Surely even in a toilet you can live for years. Yeah. You don't die unfortunately. <laughs> but. It's as horrible as that. Everything is ugly, not dirty, but colorless. It's, it doesn't belong to you. It's not so your universe. So yeah. what do you do to make the days pass? I mean, what did you do? Well, I, I was in the PKK ward, yeah. and the PKK prisoners have a long <coughs> experience as prisoners. Yeah. Some were as there as 20, over 20 years. Yeah. There were three ladies, 22 years. So they have an, uh, a lot of experience. Yeah. 
And experience is the crucial thing in jail. Mm. You can't really survive without learning from other prisoners. Yeah. And they tell you that strict regime, daily routines are very important. Yeah. You must keep on uh, doing the same thing, same hour, and you must have reading hours, you must exercise, you must do And they had a very strict routine. Yeah. It's every day, six and a half hours, they had training. Yeah. They read books on, let's say, uh, politics, philosophy, they, in groups, which we didn't join, me and Nejmi Alpay, but we joined the Kurdish lessons. Yeah. But six and a half hours of entire silence. You yeah. can't make noise. Everything is very rigid, like in the army, eight o'clock roll call, 10 o'clock this, and so it's six o'clock, another roll call, dinner, lunch, everything is at fixed hours. Um, a bit like, uh, and, you know, this Yatlı Okul, what's it Boarding school, yeah. boarding yeah. school. Yeah. You feel like you are a child almost. Everything, you can't decide about your own time, yeah. your own, and there is the prison authorities that uh, always make decisions for you. I mean, you are never left alone. They, any moment the door opens, guards come in, or any moment there's a call, you are called to the lawyer, to the doctor, and you have to go. You can't just sit and say, this is this one hour I will read. If they call you, you have to go. Yeah. It's horrible. So, so <laughs> what did you read in prison? I had many books uh, actually brought, sent to me from uh, outside. Yeah. But because of the emergency rule, now that's restricted, you can have only 15 books okay. at most. Yeah. So and people don't know about that. They send you a pack, yeah. of and then what do you do? He sends you twenty books, and people send their own books. Now each time books come to me, yeah. either I have to take out books, or my prisoner friends have to do yeah. it. So it's a big hassle. Yeah. And fifteen books is nothing actually. Yeah. It finishes so quickly. Uh, I ask for a real care for a salon. Um, and uh, I was reading Bulgakov, Kotze, and there was a nice library in the ward, yeah. but the prison authorities wanted to confiscate, but the girls didn't. Uh, and literature, philosophy, everything. So I said I, would, I should read things that I'd, I wouldn't bother to read outside. Yeah. I read like world history. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd read about, I don't know, the development of um, bourgeoisie in Europe and the wow. trade unions, the importance <laughs> of guilds and trade unions. Yeah. I read with interest, you know, I never would read such yeah. so boring from the Middle Ages to how the yeah. merchants organized and this class yeah. of bourgeoisie was. I, you, in prison you read things like that, it's, uh, to keep your mind busy. And I learned Sudoku. Uh, uh, I'm very good. Very so now good. you're an expert. <laughs> I, I came to, in a few months actually, from beginner to yeah. medium, now I'm, I can do the advanced. Okay, you're an advanced one. Listen, Asli, in a mail I got from you on 26th of March, 1634, the time was 1634, you wrote, Last Tuesday, our president personally threatened 
the terrorist writers and declare that we will be treated worse than animals. I have been waiting for police since his threat, night after night after night. Why didn't you leave? I have forgotten about that mail. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, you knew that this could yes, happen to you? Actually, because and I, uh, he actually personally threatened me. I yeah. knew it was me. Yeah. One, uh, nobody believed me, but I knew. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I guess it's more than anything else, inertia. Why didn't the Jews leave after the Nuremberg laws passed? You kind of say, oh, it, that, that won't go that far. Come on, let me not be paranoid. Who am I? Why should he be? Kind of, you wait two, three days, it's exciting, then nothing happens. You think you are safe. <laughs> and actually, I knew I was about to be arrested. Uh, so why didn't you leave? It was too late. Also, there was a problem with my publisher. They uh, I actually, in this case, usually I'm too depressed to get into action, but this time it was actually the fault of my publisher. I was about to transfer to another publishing house, yeah. and he just wanted to stop me, and one week before the end of our contract, he published all my books. So I was left with 3,000 copies of so the new publisher was in big trouble. I, she said, I want you, Asli, but how can I? All your books are in treat, blah, blah, blah. And this, this was supposed to be in March. My contract ended in March. I was supposed to be in Denmark in June. Yeah. And I settled the fight between the two publishers in July. Hmm. I settled it. I was about to ap apply for a visa. Yeah. I couldn't leave my books. If yeah. I left that time, I mean, who would publish? Or uh, So the coup happened a bit too fast. In fact, I was going to leave in the beginning of September latest, yeah. and I was writing my last column. Mm -hmm. So the coup I was not expecting, yeah. and everything changed. So, so I was suddenly trapped. And I think my passport got cancelled very soon after uh, I didn't even try. Uh, after the coup, not the night of the coup, I felt this time <laughs> I am trapped. <laughs> and, but uh, but we have met a couple of times, even in Istanbul, and each time we have met, you have said things are getting worse and worse. It's horrible. It's dangerous. All my friends are in prison. Oh my God! And I remember when we met in Istanbul one time. And two years had passed since the Gezi Park uh, mm -hmm. uprising. Uh, a lot of you remember those. And, and uh, th the condition had already hardened severely for writers and other intellectuals. And you had returned to Istanbul after 18 months of exile. Because you missed the city so much, Istanbul. As we were about to leave the classic Hotel Perapallas, and go for a long walk, you said, oh my God, what have I returned to? I have to leave the country. Already then you said it. Yes, but I mean, uh, I'm a human being. I have, you know, I, I have many contradictions, many... 
It's not that easy to say it. Of course, there is also this, uh, why do you get a visa? I'm a Turkish citizen. It's always so difficult yeah. to find a work permit, living permit. Uh, practical issues are much big, more uh, difficult than you, you can imagine. But also, I think Turkey is a also very unpredictable country. Yeah. Between 2011 to 2013, yeah. Özgür Gündem was busted. Yeah. 12 journalists were arrested. Yeah. So I got afraid as a columnist. Yeah. They didn't touch the columnist. I was an advisor then. They didn't yeah. even call me even as a witness. Yeah. That was a more planned, more careful operation. Yeah. They were really trying to find if there was any connection to PKK. Yeah. But this was totally different. They, they didn't arrest any of the journalists. They don't care about PKK. They actually wanted to arrest me. Yeah. <laughs> that the tape, fact that I'm an advisor yeah. became a crime after five years. Yeah. So between 2013 to, and 2015, there was not a single court case against Özgür Gündem. In 2016, one year later, yeah. there is about a thousand, and they say this newspaper is the paper of PKK. Yeah. Uh, well, with why didn't you do anything in the between 2013 to 2015? Yeah. And this newspaper was founded in the 90s. Is it now that you discovered it's the paper yeah. of PKK? Surely, it's the big everything is just political and it changes from one day to the other and uh, it's very much it's a one man rule his whims and his caprices uh, decide everything so next week he might say Özgür Gündem is the best paper in the world he could say that yes he can say I mean it's uh, but is it also a question of because we have also talked a lot about exile uh, you said that when you were in exile, it was like a kind of death. You missed Istanbul so much. Was that also in the back of your, of your head? What it means to live away from the streets you know and love and the smell and the sounds and well, the light? My first book was The Miracles Mandarin yeah. and it was actually about exile. Yeah. I started writing up by writing about exile, this metaphor yeah. of one-eyed woman is yeah. actually that split. And at the age of 25, I was not in a physical exile, I was only a physicist at CERN. Yeah. Each, I mean, I told you many times Turkey is so bad, so bad, yeah. but it gets much worse, much worse, <laughs> much worse. Yeah. I mean, you, you see first the prison, then you are Buchenwald, you miss the prison, then you go to Auschwitz, Buchenwald, it's the same with exile. There were there are deeper and deeper layers. Uh, so it's uh, I always said I see it as the metaphor of the human being, the modern human being. Modernity started with the split, and with the fact that we realize we are in exile, because the, the moment we decided to own the land, actually this is how our exile started. All these things are nice words, but there is, the, of course, the actual reality of not being able to go back to a country. And then it becomes, controversially or so, uh, ironically, a home. Yeah. I mean, I, I never had uh, 
much attachment or feelings of belonging or uh, to Turkey or even to Istanbul. Yeah. But when you can't go back, it becomes this imaginary homeland and it's, it's, very, it's a kind of prison. Yeah. The whole world becomes prison. It's, uh, it sounds unbelievable, but it's true. You can go everywhere in the world, but there is this one little city you can't go. The rest turns into a cage. It's so difficult to explain it to people who haven't lived through. No. So the concept of home, even for writers, whether you're a lawyer, a writer, or a farmer, what is a home? I mean, what is a home? I mean, it's easy for my father, who was a, is a migrant, he misses his village between Euphrat and Tigris. That's his home. We always talk about the light and the smells, and the, that's a home. For me, I, I don't know what a home is. It's, it's yes, everywhere. I Where is home well. for you, the feeling of home? I understand very well that, uh, for example, most of the uh, European publishers, when I approached them with my Rio book, well, why don't you tell us your little uh, village? <laughs> that, that village doesn't exist, <laughs> simply. Uh, and, uh, well, I guess uh, the easiest answer to is to say the home is, uh, is my language, or uh, I try to... I think I try to see everything more as a journey. Yeah. Uh, and... I have a text that's not translated to any languages so far, but it's called more or less Exit, Exodus, Exit, something. Yeah. And there's a late woman, uh, Odysseus, yeah. and when she comes back, Ithaca doesn't accept her. There is no Ithaca for the woman, yeah. that journey. It's uh, something someone has left her forever. It's part of her, some other person. Is it the home itself? The Itaka is simply not existing when you return, yeah. uh, e even in writing. That's, uh, but still, there are moments when you are in tr actual exile, you feel like going down on your knees and begging for, like, let me go back for 24 hours. No, nothing more, just 24 hours. What for? A cup of tea, or looking at Bosphorus, yeah. things that are very small and meaningless, but you come to a point of really begging. Yeah. In fact, when I came out of uh, Turkey, I wanted to go back. They almost kept me by force. I, I said, I will go back for a week. <laughs> I have to go. I have to change my clothes. My writing is there. I, my uh, windows are open. And maybe 50 people talk to me out of are you crazy? <laughs> don't, don't. Why do you want to go back? They just can't understand. They talk, oh, do you have a lover or something? <laughs> I just I want to go back for a week, and yeah. uh, then I. This is the, I mean, maybe childish reactions we show to. to me. It's listen as to your your exile also existing. I mean, you also write it in different ways in your. <laughs> New book in, in Norwegian. Let me see if my Norwegian is quite good. No er ikke engang stillheten din. Was it okay? Yeah. yeah. It's a collection of, of political and existential essays about racism, nationalism, exile, collective self, deception, mm -hmm. 
bloody history soaked in silence, the Armenian mm -hmm. genocide, victims of violent patriarchal societies, the devastation of Diyarbakir, Sur, Jizra, and not least about the writing. Mm -hmm. Yes, writing as the silence echoes while people are burned to ashes in cellar spaces like in Jizra. Mm -hmm. And in the chapter, We Are Guilty, you raise the question, what can a text improve? What difference can its words make? How much truth does the reality stand? Mm -hmm. So which are the answers? I mean, what can a text improve? What difference can its words make? Uh, I mean, these are uh, questions that have only temporary answers. Uh, so, which is the answer today? Uh, well, this text put me into jail, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> very, the Jizre text, yeah. uh, very uh, solid uh, change in my life. Yeah. But also, um, when after my arrest, uh, I gave an interview from the jail. Yeah. The first uh, month, I, things were a bit uh, easier. Not the first week, but then the second, third, fourth week, I could still give interviews. Then they were very afraid of my communication with outside world. Yeah. And uh, the one the magazine, which I used to write for before, made a special issue on me. And in one of those uh, pages, there was an interview with uh, people in Jizre. Yeah. And I read it in jail and I really cried. It was people on the street and they asked about my arrest. And they have never read me, they have never uh, read any of my books. Even Let's say that Jizre is a town in the Kurdish parts of Turkey. And so. totally yeah. devastated. Now it doesn't exist anymore. No, it's, it's flat. Yeah. <laughs> and where hundreds of people were killed. Yeah. Uh, and they have heard of my name and that I was in jail because in the interview I said probably they put me to jail because I wrote about Jizre. Yeah. And they said, we will never forget her. Even if the whole world forgets Asla, we will always remember her. And it's, it's uh, what can literature do more? I mean, it's uh, it's such a beautiful bridge. They haven't read my words, but yeah. they know I have cared about their tragedy. I didn't turn my back. Yeah. I tried to write it. Yeah. And I didn't save anybody from the sellers. Yeah. Uh, I didn't bring anybody back to life. Yeah. But somebody listened and voiced their story. And, yeah. and this is very important for these people. They say, we will never forget her. We will never leave her alone. And those people, you know, each family has so many deaths and their homes are gone, their lives are destroyed, uh, so heavily traumatized. Yeah. But um, I think it's valuable for both sides, for me and for them, that and I never will forget that we are uh, infinitely or no, eternally bonded together, Jizre people and me simply because I wrote about them. Yeah. And uh, I find something sacred in this, uh, something very true in this bond. Uh, uh. But is it 
I know that you have many times told me that you hate politics. You actually you want to write, you want to travel, you want to have a yeah, smoke. I want to you be at a, my home, yeah, listen to my life. Bach, and yeah. have my Rilke yeah. and poetry. Yeah. Even at this age, it's I mean to to. I have never been actually in active politics, honestly. So, so why do you continue? I mean, since 19, in the late 1990s, when almost no one in Turkey wrote about these issues, I mean, the, the patriarchal society, the violence against Kurdish women in prison, you did it. So if you hate politics, what makes you write about it? Is it an act of... Sympathy is it to compete to with your own conscience, or why? Why do you read about it, even if you know the costs? Is it a moral obligation or what? Oh, it's a complicated question, and uh, there was even a right-wing uh, columnist that time who I was writing so much about prisons. He yeah. said he had, he did this easy psychoanalysis. Yeah. Probably he knows, he's from the Secret Service. Yeah. He knows about my childhood, as least always trying to save her mother from the violent father. Perhaps true. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I was five years old when I first saw a gun, and for me it's very natural to jump in front of a gun to yeah. save someone else. I never really understood why others don't do it, <laughs> why they r lay down when there's a gun uh, yeah. in this. I, I, for me, it's so natural to, yeah, even out of curiosity, I want to see the eyes of the, of the, of the oppressor. Right? Of the oppressor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a scene like that in my Rio novel. I did, in fact, stand up and look at the guy who was shooting. But I think this is too easy answer. I mean, it's not, I'm not only my subconscious. I, there's a conscious choice there. Uh, and I do believe that the story of the victim is an essential part of our reality. And uh, without that, everything becomes more and more devoid of meaning. To be able to put some meaning into our own story, yeah. I think we have to hear the victim's voice, which is also inside us too. And uh, I think literature is, uh, in fact, perhaps playing too easy games, just uh, not dealing with these atrocities. This is the basic man mankind's reality. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there are millions of millions of victims of horrible crimes, and but just turn our head away and we think we can produce great sentences and lovely metaphors. And, uh, but this is not real. This is our essential truth, that there is oppression. We love to oppress people. We love uh, pain in both side ways. Yeah. And we hate it. And I find... Uh, Perhaps I don't know why I have to always walk on this borderline, why I don't... Uh, it's perhaps my psychological limit, but uh, I do find uh, human experience in, in those no-man zones or, or these dangerous borderlines. 
it sounds Camusian almost, Albert Camus, he, he once wrote that it is impossible to only write about love while the world is burning. And in Turkey, the fire is very real. I mean, if in Norway, maybe you <coughs> could explain it by your psychology. Okay, my father beat my mother, so I'm, that's why I'm in, uh, trying to help <coughs> African women. But in Turkey, this is our everyday life. And this yeah. is, as a Turkish citizen, surely I have a responsibility yeah. of what's happening in my own geography. Uh, I am contributing to it in with it simply by paying taxes. And uh, surely, I mean, it's, uh, I, I find it very natural that someone assumes responsibility to at least what's happening next door. To uh, Batasli, there must also be moments when you may think that, my God, don't write about this, Asli. I, I can't take it anymore. Let someone else write about it. I have done my part. Or? No, I'm, I'm a very, very much of a writer in that uh, sense. So I don't control what I write. It controls me. It's, when something comes, I have to write it. it. It speaks through me. Like what happened with Jizre. I, yeah. uh, I was actually in Krakow when all this horrible... Uh, Everything turned upside down in 2015. The yeah. war suddenly started. <clears throat> I went only for one month yeah. uh, back to Turkey. And when I came back, things were already at the peak. People were in the cellars and towns were uh, being burned. And I saw a documentary. 2,000 people saw it. Uh, but perhaps they had been used to it. Yeah. This documentary was scenes of the last months, yeah. the bomb explosion in Ankara where 100 people died, all these one after the other. But I looked at it as a foreigner yeah. coming six months later back to Turkey. And there was a scene, uh, it's in Jizre, and the police made an announcement, uh, we will not shoot at those who come out with white flags. And from the cellars came out uh, a group of people, old men, old women, children, all waving their white flags and had a little uh, carriage, Virgin, yeah, yeah. Like the carriage, small yeah. thing, all their belongings, yeah. just one that and waving. And the police shot all of them. And when I saw that scene, I knew I would write Jizre. Yeah. And uh, I walked home. Uh, it was raining, and the sound of the rain was so similar to this shooting. Yeah. And I noticed on the way I am being followed by police. And I went home, and I said, I will write. Yeah. I have to write Jizre. And uh, I wrote the first article. My mother called me too at night. She was crying. She was very mo much moved by that article. Yeah. And she said, please don't. <laughs> don't. Don't write like that. Turkey has changed a lot. No. You can't write such things anymore. I beg you, don't write. What was your answer? Well, to a mother, I had said, don't worry. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> Everything will be fine, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, again I wrote. 
But lastly, whether you like it or not, I mean, you have a public role, okay? Uh, where you fight against power, injustice, inequality, patriarchy, oppression. Isn't there a risk, actually, that your art might thrive or might suffer because too much politics could either suffocate or overwhelm the poetry and the art of storytelling. Truly, I mean, uh, when I started my column in two, <coughs> back in '98, actually, I did write my best column, uh, columnist work in uh, back in '90s. Yeah. These, I think, are much much lighter compared to those. Th those days, I took it very seriously. I put all my power into columns. Now I'm more professional. Yeah. Uh, and I knew. First, I the crown in my head as the princess of Turkish literature was taken. Yeah. I knew it would be taken. This yeah. I didn't mind. But yeah. uh, I was thinking, oh, can, should I, can I ever go back to literature? Should I go back? That's every morning. Oh, yeah. I will never write again. <laughs> I'm wasting my talents. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I, should, I could have written three novels by now. But then again, the question is, uh, what do we write for? For literary prizes, for to to be translated, for the Nobel Prize, or to find some essential truth about ourselves, at least try to ask the right questions, and that you can do in a column too, and you can do about with Jizre. Yeah. Maybe writing about Jizre is more literature yeah. than uh, writing dozens of well-performed, perfect novels. Because it's about the human being. I'm the old-fashioned uh, writer. I yeah. still believe in the human being, yeah. <laughs> things like that. And uh, uh, but then people are being burned alive in some cellars, and uh, you just can't put on your bah and uh, write great words about life and death. It's phony. It's not true. But can you miss it? I mean, now I have an idea of writing a novel. Maybe you put some politics in it. Can't you miss it only to concentrate? Yes, so hour? many times I missed, so many times I decided to quit the column. Yeah. In fact, I did write a column only altogether five years. Yeah. I, 98 to 2001, I got fired from Radical. 2010, I was in Radical, I got fired in five months. Yeah. And in Özgür Gündem, I stopped actually in 2013, yeah. and I write. Once in a while, yeah. actually. I don't know why my column became so <laughs> so important, even in Turkey. Yeah. I mean, my column <clears throat> was surpassed my literature. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I didn't do it so for so long. And yeah. of course, every morning I wake up and watch, why do I care about the curse? It's not my matter. <laughs> I want to comfortably write a novel for one year and yeah. that's it. but then by evening I change my mind I mean it's something as like I see a film a documentary and uh, yes perhaps I, I've missed some people very openly say to my face yeah. they, they don't really understand how much how deep the dagger hurts yeah. you have you are such a great talent and look you missed you messed up everything. You wasted your talent. You wasted your talent, and you got so involved in politics, blah blah blah. But 
I think it's not so true. If you look at my literature, there is a the same time it's evolving around the same theme anyway. So yeah. and uh, well, it's me. I mean, <laughs> speaking <laughs> about themes, uh, Asli, in Byen med den röda kappa, is it correct, Janneken? Yeah. The main character Özgür comes up with this conclusion: I have written because it was the only protection I had against death. Mm. And in this new book, which is about to come here in Norway, it sounds even more sad if you ask me. You write, the writing and storytelling is to be sentenced to life. It's being forced to live all that is lost with death, forced to participate in this monster we call everyday life. It's like writing is a punishment and captivity in the same way. Oh, yeah, in the same in this novel too, because a bit later she will say, uh, "I have these are only lies." She will say for her literature, "The lies that lick my wounds." Yeah, uh, and I think it's one of the most true confessions I have made about literature. It's, it is. It is. Even if you try to write the truth, it's just lies that. That lick, lick the wounds. Uh, but um, yeah, in that book, even in the, in, it's a much earlier novel. Yeah. Uh, it, there is this question: Is writing a catharsis? Yeah. Özgür means free in yeah. Turkish, and, and by writing her story, does she really become Özgür? Does she really become free, yeah. or does she become a captive in her own creation? And I think this is the dilemma of her writing. Both, yes, she she went through a catharsis. She yeah. uh, she she became herself. Yeah. But that meant, of course, death yeah. uh, for her. Uh, so I, essentially, the same theme. Uh, you are right in that uh, writing as captivity and writing as uh, as a liber liberation. Yeah. And the in, in I mean the pre the prevailing theme. Um, of your work often is the brokenness of human beings. All of your literary characters are more or less prisoners in a world that is slowly turning into a prison. Sometimes I imagine that it is your own fate you write, as if the true destiny of all of humanity is total solitude. Is writing like to be friend with that loneliness for you? Well, in Özgür's case, for sure, she created a whole universe, and when she looked at it, she was all alone. <laughs> That's the that was the essential. That she was with her own image, yeah. nothing more. Uh, and in your case, uh, well, in fact, this is what columnist work taught me, actually. Yeah. By writing, I started writing in Radical very soon after I wrote that novel. Yeah. That actually writing about death yeah. is is not only about writing your own death. Yeah. I realized that there are other people in this world. There are people dying, and writing about someone else's death yeah. is is some other responsibility. Yeah. And in fact, I had. 
the city in crimson cloak is an interpretation of Orpheus myth. Uh, Orpheus and Eurydice is Özgür and her written self. But I realized much later, you know, Orpheus is a love story, Asli. (laughs) Your love, your Eurydice doesn't exist. Simply, it's your written self. And I kind of, I named my column The Others. And um, months later, uh, maybe I told this before, that uh, I wrote about the prisoner, a Kurdish woman who was uh, in jail for three years, least sentence, for assisting PKK, villager woman with eight children or so, uh, and she got cancer in jail, and she was very badly tortured in her genitals. Um, and she was about to die. And uh, and there was an article that time that the prisoners at the final terminal state of uh, fatal diseases are let free. And this article was not activated in her case. So I wrote, uh, Ahmed Altan wrote, coincidentally we both went to jail. When two or three Turkish writer, when two or three people write at the same time, the authorities made a move and she was liberated. And I felt this feeling of victory. It's a very foreign feeling. I we took her out. We beat the system. And a few months later, she died. There was small news in the papers. Uh, Hanum. Hanım Baran is dead. And I felt such a strong feeling of guilt of, uh, of that. How could you think you had won a victory over death? <laughs> you have written a novel about Orpheus myth yeah. and you have not understood what it is all about. There is no victory over death. And <coughs> I had written a novel saying that writing cannot be death, and I hadn't understood it. For to for me to be able to fully comprehend that, that the Orpheus only opens the doors to close it back, I had to look at Hanım Baran's death, yeah. and that feeling of total defeat, yeah. I must say. But now years have passed, I've seen the prison, now I'm more, uh, I'm softer to myself. I, I know there's a huge difference between dying in prison and dying with oh, your yeah. relatives. At least we could do that. We, at least we could take her and have, give her a final chance to say goodbye uh, to her family, to her yeah. children. And this is immense uh, in itself. But yes, um, Maybe from my columnist work also, I learned to deal with more responsibility towards themes, the theme of death and mortality. Yeah. Uh, it's not my only death. It's yeah. easy when you write a novel. It's you and your death. You put yourself <laughs> to grave whenever you want. But yeah. these are real people. Yeah. They have relatives. They have murderers. Maybe the murderers are reading those as well. I always think of that way. I want to influence or leave an effect even on the police who did the torture. I, I, 
he's like my target. Yeah. Maybe I can make him cry <laughs> or something. About making him cry, so, so how do you take these experiences you have had the last years, and how will you, have you thought of, okay, how will I transform this into a great novel, or a novel? Have you thought of that? What is happening to your writing? Have you asked yourself that question? Well, um, I tried two approaches uh, in my column work, or in the, in the, the stone building. Yeah. It's actually, it passes in a one eternal night uh, in a police station or a prison. Yeah. And there I approached it very indirectly, the theme of torture. Yeah. I made circles around it and uh, very black, stony pictures, almost yeah. inerasable. Mm -hmm. And this book was criticized in Turkey by especially leftists. They said, oh, this is not, the torture is not like that. You have to use a language like a stone yeah. to describe, uh, which in fact the Gizre article has a language like stone. Yeah. Uh, and I thought when I was in prison, no, I was right. The language of the trauma is like this. I, I don't remember writing a very well formulated narrative about prison would be fiction. Yeah. But the really the trauma speaks with like frozen pictures, yeah. almost inerasable. You want to rip them off, but yeah. they are there yeah. like the... Uh, choir of the tortured children, yeah. and there's a big cloud surrounding it. Actually, I experienced prison exactly as I had written it. As there's a written. long, big cloud around, yeah. and the details are lost, the stories are lost, and I, the selves, are mixing together. Uh, but of course, this is one approach. Another approach, the easier perhaps, would be to try to write something like Dostoevsky, like the memories from from, a cell. from the uh, to, from the house of the dead yeah. where he doesn't try to make uh, literature and in fact it's great literature yeah. he forms and, uh, uh, but it's not easy i must say it's i have not read many good books about prisons no. uh, many people who try to write concentration camps uh, committed suicide uh, I guess one side of you wants to leave everything behind. Yeah. And to be able to write the prison, you have to go back there. And Are you willing to go back in order to create something you... a novel? Honestly, if the case was over, if I had no risk of going back physically, it would yeah. be easier to go back psychologically. But now, <laughs> if I think of prison so too much, I'm afraid of calling it back. It's, yeah. uh, it's uh, very mixed feelings. Uh, but I, what I know, what I don't want to do is to, to misuse this experience. It's yeah. very easy to write uh, something in three months and get it translated. No, I want to keep this experience until the point I know I can transform it into some art. Some art, yeah. Because uh, Asli doesn't write like... Uh, if you ask me, there are too many books on the market. I mean, people write books every day almost. Asli doesn't write books every day or every year. Uh, 
sometimes you've said it takes you six or seven years to write a hundred pages. Is it a matter of inspiration or extreme self-criticism? Or, or do you have to catch a certain feeling or a voice in order to say, okay, now yes, I'm... Yes, part of it is the voice. I yeah. have to follow a voice. What is that voice? I mean, tell people in the audience who do not write, what kind of voice is it? Well, they will believe I'm schizophrenic, but <laughs> you, you know when you hear it. It just comes with one sentence and you know it's the right sentence and it's some kind of a whisper among words. Uh, I don't know, I know it when I get it. When, uh, yeah. And... Some some articles, for example, not all my articles are literary. I carry on, carry on, carry on. Whatever you do, it's lifeless. You just can't breathe into it. Yeah. Uh, try, try, find this adjective, that adjective. No. And there is no explanation. Sometimes I try, okay, because I use this pen, let me try with <laughs> this will Another bring like, this will bring yeah. luck, babe. Maybe I put on music and I try to get into the mood. It just doesn't uh, happen. It's um, I guess in my life traumas have a uh, they open certain valves, like yeah. leaving my country each split. And this book, I said, I wrote in seven years. I considered it my best book. Unfortunately, not translated because it's poetic prose. Yeah. In the silence of life, the first ten pages I wrote in three weeks, yeah. very short time. Yeah. Uh, after I got the death news of someone very close, and months later, when I looked at the text, I couldn't. What have I done? I mean, it's it's not me. <laughs> Truly, it's not my voice. Some, I mean, I must have been uh, on the border of uh, losing my mind. I I thought such sentences from where? It's the trauma speaking. Someone is dead, and you are hearing the silence of life for the first time through the blood of someone else. Uh, things like that. I mean, but. Uh, I think also I shouldn't, uh, uh, how do you say, I'm also very lazy, very yeah. undisciplined. Mm -hmm. I could have written three, four more books. Plus I had many health problems, many problems with life. With, uh, and uh, I'm in Turkey, in a way, uh, living in Turkey is not only political oppression. You are oppressed from many sides, as a woman, as a this, as that, economic difficulties. You have to struggle for each penny and uh, you try to keep a bit of wisdom while in that uh, process. Uh, my ex-boyfriend wrote a horrible novel about me. I was in the... Uh, for two <coughs> months I couldn't even go out onto the streets. I was lynched by the community hated hated because i'm because i'm a woman yeah. then my best friend turned out to be a secret agent <laughs> then she was found dead in her apartment if i was norwegian none of these would have happened <laughs> i mean come on it's uh, here baby your biggest trauma is your best friend has a 
affair with your girlfriend or boyfriend. <laughs> but in Turkey, your best friend turns out to be a secret agent. And then, oh, on top of it, she's dead. Now. <laughs> well, maybe the, the next book could start at the House of Literature. <laughs> One evening at the House of Literature. Lastly, I think that um, uh, uh, this audience or the Norwegians, they are quite patient. So even, it takes, even if it takes one month or one year or two years or three years or four years, we will wait for the next novel, won't we? <laughs> thank you so much for coming here and thank you for coming. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.